0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live.
1: Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Francis D. Sellers, a senior writer here at the Washington Post. Today, we're going to take another step towards explaining America with Dr. Cecilia Rouse, who is the former chair of President Biden's Council of Economic Advisors and the incoming president of the Brookings Institution. Dr. Cecilia Rouse, Congratulations on that new appointment and a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live.
0: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you today.
1: Well, we're taking on a big topic, paid parental leave, and uh, maybe we could start, we have viewers from overseas, maybe we could start with a little bit of a definition about what we mean by that and what the norm is in many other Western
0: European countries and wealthy liberal democracies. Absolutely. So uh, in the United States in particular, we're we, uh, since the early 90s, we've recognized that people do get sick, they do have children, and in order to allow them to balance work and family, we have allowed uh, people to take family medical, parental medical leave um, for the FMLA, but that is unpaid. And so workers are entitled to up to 12 weeks of this unpaid leave uh, and to, for the employers required to keep their job. And the whole goal is as is understood in the rest of the world or much of the rest of the world is that new parents need time to bond. Uh, The women who if they've given birth need time to recover. Uh, um, So they need that time. Or if you have a serious illness or need to take care of somebody with a serious illness taking time out to attend to that loved one uh, without fear of losing their job. That's what FMLA was designed to do. However, many workers can't afford to take even the 12 weeks Without a paycheck. And so, paid leave, paid parental leave, which is this often distinct from family or medical leave, um, and but in, in my, many parts of the world, they have both. But the point with paid leave, is to recognize that especially, again, with women joining the workforce, so we don't have necessarily have somebody who's at home, and it's, you know, it's not always women, but at least traditionally it has been, someone at home to attend to the new child or new member of the family, to attend to older parents, which is becoming a, a really important need in, in many parts of the, the world, especially here in the United States and other developed countries, uh, or to attend to one's own health or serious medical condition or that of a, of a partner. Uh, so paid leave says that one can take anywhere from 12, 52 weeks, in Estonia is more than a year, uh, to, to tend to the family responsibilities and to receive some part of your compensation uh, while doing so, as, as, in addition to having a job. So that's the question that's at hand. And as you noted in the introduction, the United States uh, is lagging behind the rest of the world in providing this kind of uh, assurance for workers. So
1: we're going to get more into food as the paying and how that works as we've gone through the program. But how is it that America, the richest country in the world, is such an anomaly here?
0: Well, I, <laughs> that's a very good question. Uh, many of our social benefits, going back to the New Deal and how we constructed many of our benefits, are paid through uh, employment. So they're tied to employment. We get, uh, most people get their health insurance through uh, their employer. Um, disability is often re- re- provided through one's employer. In fact, one way that a lot of workers do uh, take a little time out to deal with a serious illness on their own part or on the part of a loved one is through short-term disability. So many of our benefits are, are provided through employment. And so then it becomes you know part of a compensation package that employers need to be providing. I think it also goes back traditionally to there being somebody at home who could attend to those kinds of responsibilities. That that is one way to organize a household and a workplace, is one person is working, one person's at home attending to the household. Uh, In the United States, that was traditionally women. As women started to enter the workforce, uh, that became not as available for many families. Uh, Women entered because they wanted to. Uh, Women entered because they needed to. And so if they're not at home, somebody else needs to be able to take up the slack. But you know the reality is workers—they want to. Many workers want to work, so they want to be productive and to spend some of their time that way. But uh, you know life does catch up with us. Many of us, our parents, uh, want to be parents, uh, want to meet our new adoptive child or our own child to which to whom we give birth or natural born child. Um, illness strikes almost everybody at some point. It can be more mild. It can be more serious. And we do have an aging population. So many workers have uh, older relatives that they also need to take care of. So the United States so- has to adapt to that rea- that changing reality of our our homes and of the workplace. So let me flip that question just a little bit and
1: ask, is America the richest country in the world? Because it has not been paying
0: out some of these benefits and has pushed it onto employers? Well, you know, define rich and define welfare. Right. There are right. many dimensions right. on which, uh, you know, if we look at the size of our economy, uh, we are, you know, the richest country in the world. If we, you know, we look at GDP per capita, uh, you know, if you're just for purchasing power parity, there are questions with uh, where we rank regarding China. But if you look on the way that we measure gross domestic product, we look as though we are a very wealthy country. Along other dimensions, if you look at uh, child and infant mortality, maternal mortality, even look at our life expectancy, which has been falling, and the and the increasing rates of mental, Ill, um, uh, mental illness, uh, suicide, uh, there are other dimensions in which it's it's not actually so clear. Mm. So,
1: just to jump back, since nineteen ninety three, we've had this twelve weeks of unpaid leave. In your research and in your understanding, looking at this sociologically, how have women made this work? And it is largely women. It was largely women. That may be
0: changing. But how have they made it work? Um, so the technical term is spit and duct tape. Uh, but, I mean, but more seriously, <laughs> we had... Um, you know, we've had a growth of a child care sector. Now, that sector is under a lot of pressure. It was disproportionately affected by the pandemic. It's a sector that is more expensive in the United States than compared to most other countries, along with understanding that parents uh, need help balancing responsibilities between work and family goes with having affordable child care. So this is not when the child is sick and not when the child is just a newborn. But you know, after they've had the the paid family leave that or parental leave, children need to be continuing to be cared for. They don't, you know, at six months right. they haven't figured out how to feed themselves. Um, so uh, most other countries also it's more heavily subsidize their ch- child childcare sectors. In the United States, not only on the is is it an expensive sector for the parents, but it's also not a very well paid sector for the providers. So it's got a precarious business model. It's very labor intensive. We still, you know, little babies still need to have you know just like the ratio of two babies to one caretaker. You can't have twenty babies in a room with you know just one caretaker. We can't scale that with technology. So it's a, it's become an increasingly uh, expensive enterprise. And is precarious. So, um, you know, but childcare and having external out of the house, having some provision of childcare is one way to make it work. Families have had to, uh, you know, work together. So you find families where one parent uh, is working days and one parent's working at night, so they have somebody who's available. But it has it's, it has stretched the American family. Uh, And it has not been easy. The other way in which you see women have made it work is they accept occupations where there's more job flexibility. And that is one explanation for the gender gap in wages, is that women... Uh, have needed the flexibility to be able to take time out to take kids to the doctor or be able to be there for them, they're more likely to work part time for exactly that reason. So that has, you know, for many women, that's their choice. And that's what they would like to do. But for some women, they're doing it because they feel that they they don't have another way to make it work.
1: I want to ask you specifically as well about the ways in this in which this may uh, extend inequities in this country, um, between people who can afford either to stay home for those 12 weeks or longer, or can afford to pay for childcare and go back. How do women in minority groups and people who have less socioeconomic advantage break
0: through? Well, that's again, that's part of the challenge. One, so, uh, you know, to add insult to injury, more highly paid uh, workers are more likely to get the paid uh, fa- parental and family leave in the first place, so that they don't have to make that choice. Um, you see that less educated workers, um, minority workers, are less likely to have that kind of a, a benefit uh, attached to their employ- employment. So uh, you know, many families do it by relying on relatives and their and their uh, in their communities in order to provide the childcare. So children are in more informal childcare settings. Uh, which, you know, can be wonderful. Uh, but we also know that high quality childcare is important to give children a good start in life. Uh, and it may not be the first choice for the parents, but it's the only choice that they have. So a lot of them are doing it by, again, taking the kinds of jobs that allow them the flexibility, relying on other family members to take care of their children. And then some children, when they're old enough, are left to their own devices. And, you know, many children flourish is fine. Uh, but uh, pr- probably in many cases, the parents would like to, in some of those cases, the parents would like to you know, have their child in supervised care uh, for longer. So it's really been by, again, spit and duct tape uh, that a lot of families <laughs> are, work.
1: Well, you know, in the time that this debate has been going on, definition of family has changed very dramatically. The person staying at home is no longer necessarily a mother. Has that helped? make arguments that the presence of men, in fact, uh, wanting to take paternity leave as well as women taking maternity leave actually added weight to the argument that it's necessary.
0: I suspect so. But the other reality in the United States is that we've had falling labor force participation for men, for prime-age men, for many decades. We've seen it it, it, it increase, labor force participation increase for women through the end of the 1990s. It has plateaued since then. And so it's, it's, it's an economic reality that um, you know, if unless men are going to step up and we have seen increased engagement of men in in household responsibilities, it still does not equal that of women by a long shot. So either men are going to those men who are choosing not to be in the labor force have to, you know, we have to shift the caretaking to them. Or if we're gonna continue to have uh, increasing prosperity to have a vibrant workforce, we have to find ways for people to balance family responsibilities and their work. So it's becoming more of an economic imperative. We know in the United States that um, are, especially going forward, again, declining rates of labor force participation among prime age men. Many people are focused on ways to try to improve that. We've seen um, plateauing labor force participation for women Falling fertility rates, which means there's not going to be a replacement at the same rate of those workers. And we have a demographic, you know, as a baby boom is working through it, a demographic shift where more of our workforce will be retiring. So the demographics of our of our economy, of our society suggest that we won't have the labor force to continue the kind of productivity growth that we've had in the past. So if we're going to maintain our level of, of, of prosperity and economic activity, we need to have more workers and make it easier for workers to balance work and family. Uh, We could also talk about immigration reform, but that's another topic.
1: (laughs) That is another topic, but I'd I'd like to ask you very specifically about the paid leave policy you worked for um, in the Biden administration, its definitions of family and caregiving and why it was ultimately left out of what became the IRA.
0: So again, so the Biden administration was attempting to provide compensation for workers who needed to take up a parental leave, family medical leave. Um, you know, again, the administration recognized that this was so important to helping women in particular uh, balance work and family, especially low income and minority women. Uh, but uh, it, it, you know, it is it is a new system for the United States. The administration was doing it through subsidies. Most other uh, countries, if we were to talk about other advanced countries that do this, they do this through their social insurance programs. Again, we attach a lot of social insurance to employment. So uh, this, you know, so it, the, the providing the benefits wasn't kind of a natural fit in terms of how the rest of the world is doing it. Uh, you know, a lot of states that have taken up, so about uh, uh, I believe it's about 12 states or 20 states have taken up, or maybe 12, um, have enacted some form of, of parental and family leave Eight states have actually enacted and have working programs. And most of those states are doing it through their payroll system. So, you know, it's a complicated, it's a complicated system. It's not cheap. Uh, It it will require, uh, you know, an increase in tax rates or increase um, expenditures by the federal government. And look, I'm not going to get into the, because I, you know, I was the economic advisor, Uh, but there are other components of the Build Back Better that really went to what I, you know, what we economists call human capital, which was helping to improve the productivity of workers, uh, that that also fell out of the bill. The administration is, you know, committed to picking these up and to seeing them through. Uh, You know, the president is not done yet. And, uh, you know, this country needs some form of paid family leave, paid parental and family medical leave, uh, to be more precise. Uh, And the question is, how do we What's the best way to do it and how we do it in a way that doesn't add to our you know, fiscal challenges and um, is politically viable?
1: Yeah. So talking about fiscal challenges, if we're talking about corporations taking the prime role here, should we expect lower salaries in those companies or higher prices for consumers? Talk to me as an economist about the impact on individual companies that take this, what one might
0: say is an enlightened approach. Yeah, so this is, it, it's an area where we have some evidence on the impact on workers and firms, but we need so much more. So what we know is that when offered leave, uh, people, workers will take it, they'll increase take it, They don't, but it's not 100%. And one question is why don't all workers who are eligible for th- these benefits take them up when they need them? But it's not 100%, do they all know about it, um, uh, et cetera, or, or is there a norm against taking advantage of such benefits? Uh, the evidence suggests that workers take them up the, the evidence suggests uh, it's it's a little mixed. Although it does suggest it, it increases labor force um, labor force attachment uh, for those let's call it mothers because parental leave has been most studied. Uh, it does mean that women are more likely to return to the labor market and labor force uh, once they take them. Apparently, in the OECD, when they've studied it after a year, maybe less so, uh, but it's certainly for the you know from zero to 52 weeks, women are more likely to go, to remain in the workforce, which is a positive thing. Uh, The impact on employers is doesn't, there's not a lot of evidence that there's negative impact on employers. So one way in which that might happen is that if, if employees go back to their employer, there's less turnover. Turnover is very costly for firms. You have to, you know, if somebody, when somebody quits, you have to then search for a new employee, which is costly. You have to train that new employee, which is costly. Uh, and so reducing turnover is a, a great way for firms to increase their, their bottom line and their profits. So who's going to pay for this, you know, statutorily, uh, it may be on the employer side or the worker side. And we economists believe that in the end, that tends to be shared. Uh, depending on, you know, how easy it is for somebody to either quit or for the firm to fire somebody, but it tends to be shared, uh, which is probably most appropriate because, you know, not all not all workers will take them up. Uh, but it is a benefit to the workers. It's a benefit to the firm, especially since it, it appears that there are no neg- let's put it this way, at least no negative consequences and likely some positive benefits for the firms as well.
1: So so give me the strongest arguments from the other side, the coalition against paid parental leave. What gives you pause when you hear their arguments?
0: Well, you, probably the strongest arguments are for the smaller firms, which are the firms less likely to be providing it already. Large firms are already providing this kind of a benefit. For smaller firms, especially the the smallest, this is an additional cost. And many of those firms are, you know, just barely uh, making ends meet as firms. Their you know their re- re- revenues are just barely co- uh, covering their costs, and so it can feel like it's uh, precarious. If you're a very small firm, say less than ten workers and you lose an employee even for, you know, six weeks, to find someone temporarily for six weeks can also be costly. You may not be able to substitute. So that can be costly. So, uh, you know, especially for small firms, there's a concern that it is an undue um, cost to, to their business. I think the reality is, however, that workers... Uh, if they are even in small firms and they do have a medical event, they need to have child care, they have parental responsibilities uh, or family responsibilities, they're not going to be as productive as workers in the first place. Now, that that hasn't been, you know, completely that needs to be studied more, but that's what some of the evidence suggests. And so helping, helping small firms as well, you know, whether it's compensating, make it easier for them to 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 hire somebody temporarily, but they too would realize the benefits of having workers that come back to work for them. So I think the strongest argument it is that it, this is on the oftentimes way I say it, this is on almost everybody's schedule. That they're going to need some time to take care of family responsibilities, and at the same time, we want to. Keep- What's the impact on health? Um,
1: of the children and of the mother. Can you give me that? Because that's an area where people do also collect
0: data. Are there good studies on the impact on health and, and of babies and of their parents? So again, we sort of have to knit it together because there are so few states where we have uh, family you know, parental leave and then the survey data is can be opaque. We don't have all the data that we need to study this. But we do know that um, when uh, offered parental leave, um, the, it, it looks as though the immunizations, babies get their toddler, uh, infants get their immunizations on time. Uh, mothers are likely to breastfeed and for longer, uh, and the mental health of the mother increases. And we know that attachment to their parents is good for the long-term health of the children. And we also know, just again knitting together, that children that grow up in households where there's a lot of stress. Also, that that has negative impacts on the health of the parents and the workers, but it also has negative impacts on the children. They don't they do less well in school, um, and they also have their own mental health challenges. So, you know, a- along those dimensions, there's th- again a lot of the there's we need more evidence, direct evidence on this. But the evidence that is there does suggest that it improves the outcomes and the welfare of the parents and the children uh, when offered this kind of a benefit.
1: Dr. Rouse, we have questions coming in from the audience, and I have one here from Justice Oli who's in D.C., and uh, Justice Oli asks, what data from state programs supports the argument that paid family leave is good for the workforce? You mentioned those 11 or so states, but maybe you can fill us a little more in on,
0: on Justin's question. Sure. So the the... My understanding is that California has the oldest program in the United States. Their program began in 2004. And that is the program that's been most studied. And it does appear so, first of all, workers who are offered the benefit are more likely to take it up. And it does look as though it improves um, some attachment to the labor force for the workers as well. And it does not look as though there is a negative impact. In fact, there may be a positive impact on productivity for the workers uh, from the employer side. So it does not, from california it appears that the workers benefit and there is not an adverse impact um, on the firms so that is a net positive and it would suggest that there's a, a benefit to to um you know in, it, from california it looks like they've gained new york state is another study is another state that's been studied um and there again it looks how workers are more likely to take up the benefit again if they take it up we believe that you know again the data are sort of you know, incomplete. So, but we do believe that when they've taken it up, uh, there are benefits for the family, um, and there the the employers remain supportive of it. There is a small group that is not so supportive, uh, but in general, the employers find that in in fact, it helps them better navigate. Uh, how to work with employees when they face these kinds of um, responsibilities at home, because it happens. You know, workers get sick, they have children, they have uh, other family members that need their assistance. And that having the paid family leave uh, helps the employers to navigate uh, how to handle those kinds of circumstances. You mentioned immigration early on, but I want to ask you about whether there's
1: any evidence that the lack of paid parental leave has an impact on birth rates. We have dropping birth rates. Uh, and that's going to cause economic problems going ahead. Does this play into it? Do we have any
0: data? So this is a challenge. And the way that my understanding of the evidence is, uh, so I'm going to just go a little geeky. This is necessary, but not sufficient <laughs> for addressing fertility, declining fertility. So we see declining fertility in many advanced countries almost every other advanced country has got at least paid parental leave, and most of them also have paid family leave. So if we have declining fertility across the board, but other countries have more, uh, you know, more support for families, then that can't in itself help reverse declining fertility. But it's very hard to see how one doesn't address declining fertility without making it easier for families to have children. Uh, One, you know, when, 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 uh, researchers have done surveys of young you know young adults as to whether they plan to have kids or. Or not, there are many concerns about the future, which is one reason why, um, you know, especially women are choosing maybe not to have children. But also just the sheer expense and and difficulty of balancing work and life and having a family. So the easier we can make it, the way it, the more we can reduce the costs on families to help them balance those those, those responsibilities, that will help. So I think we need to have it to, to address our declining fertility, but in and of itself, it won't completely reverse it. Uh, We're at risk of getting very geeky here, but I want to ask you about labor
1: shortages. We've got declining birth rate, aging population, facing all sorts of problems economically going ahead. Do you think paid parental leave could help alleviate
0: that huge issue of labor shortages? So, you you know, people are are giving their time in exchange for compensation. Compensation includes um, wages, which are in dollars, but it includes other aspects of the job as well. What kind of retirement benefits are provided? What kind of job flexibility is there? What's the, what does the vacation policy look like? And so, having benefits such as paid parental or family leave is part of an overall package of compensation. There's a reason why large firms and more, uh, you know, and better paid employees are more likely to have paid family and parental leave. It's part of a more generous compensation package. So if if jobs uh, you know, low-wage jobs, jobs that have traditionally not been that attractive, is where we see some of our bigger challenges at recruiting workers become more attractive to workers, the more likely are to see people take those jobs. People coming out of, uh, you know, not working. So, if we want to increase our labor force participation rate, having those kinds of jobs be more uh, attractive to make it easier for workers to to balance and make it worth their while, uh, it is part of the secret and will be need to be part of. Part of the solution.
1: I really want to talk to you about the pandemic. Um, it was a natural experiment in many ways, but we had this huge investment in child care through the U.S. government, 24 billion. What happened to that? What will happen, do you think, in September when that funding dries up? So
0: we do believe that that funding helped to uh, keep the child care sector viable. We do know that we're still it's still not back to where it was pre-pandemic, but that was a huge benefit to many childcare providers who are really just barely scraping by. Again, it, it's an expensive enterprise. It, it's very hard to substitute technology computers for having people uh, on site to take care of the children. So th- it, that, was a, that was so important for the viability of the childcare sector. Once schools came back as well, that's where we saw that the labor force participation rate for prime age women has, is now higher than it was pre-pandemic. So all of those supports have been so. So important for helping to increase our labor force, uh, increase labor supply, which is likely part of the reason why we see such a strong uh, recovery out of the pandemic, which is part of the reason why um, it's helping the Fed address our inflation challenges. So that has been very important for, for ensuring the overall health of our economy. Where we're going, where we go going forward, you know, the ideal is that uh, the economy is back on its feet and that the child care sector can get back to where it was before. But as I noted earlier, it's a sector where it's very expensive for parents, uh, and um and and it's a challenge on the provider side so this is a place where other countries subsidize child care they subsidize the the, the supply of child care those are the providers they subsidize the the workers or the, those who need the parents who need the child care so uh, you know this is a natural place for there to be some public investment so that workers can get back to work and children can be well cared for
1: Dr. Rouse, last question, I'm afraid, but you're about to take over the Brookings Institution, a huge institution. Uh, what, are your, what is your top priority?
0: We have to make it quick. So what is your top priority going in? Look, Brookings is a fabulous institution, and it needs to remain the go-to place for good evidence and thought about public policy and how to address the important issues of our time. So my top priority is ensure that it remains that way, even in this very changing and dynamic economy. So a data-driven future for the Brookings Institution. Dr. Cecilia
1: Aras, thank you so much for joining me today.
0: It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.